This is the All Day Rock Off Podcast, episode number 13. Welcome to the All Day Rock Off Podcast, episode number 13. This is your host, Brian, and I wanted to thank you so much for tuning in. We truly hope you enjoy this episode. And don't forget to check out our previous episodes as well. The All Day Rock Off podcast includes interviews, answers questions, and provides updates on the rucking community. Today, I am very excited to be interviewing Chris Way, who is both a GORUCK cadre and GORUCK selection finisher. You may recall that we interviewed him back in podcast episode 6, and I'm excited to have him back to talk about his selection event. Before we get started, I wanted to thank SmithX360 for leaving a five-star review on iTunes. SmithX says, This podcast is great. Brian is a great interview and really knows his stuff about rucking. Always has interesting questions and the sound quality is fantastic. A lot of new podcasts have terrible sound, but this one hasn't had a bad episode yet. Great for newbies or experienced GRT. Thank you so much, SmithX360. That really means a lot and I truly appreciate it. Without any more introduction, let's get into the interview with Chris Way about his GORUCK Selection Class 001 finish. So you completed GORUCK Selection Class 1. Back then, no one really knew what selection was. How did you even find out about the event and what made you want to sign up for it? I remember on the tuck page seeing applications for a new event and they were going to call it uh, I'm not sure if it was going to be called selection, but it was a new event that was being modeled after special forces assessment and selection. And you had to have completed a certain number of GORUCK events and justify why you thought you'd be able to complete an event like this and apply. Of course, that excited a lot of people that were doing a lot of GORUCK events. At the time, there was only the GORUCK challenge. There was no light. There was no heavy. And so the people that wanted something a little bit harder their only option was to do back-to-back GORUCK challenges. And at the time, there was a GORUCK challenge Friday, and there was a GORUCK challenge Saturday. So you could do those two. And, of course, a number of people had. HQ made a post asking people that were serious about trying something harder and encouraged people to apply. But at the time, I was recovering from a neck surgery. I had four bolts put in my neck. For 12 weeks, wasn't allowed to, to lift you know, something more than 10 to 15 pounds. And, and that event fell right in the middle of my recovery. That so, would be kind of a tough event to do if you can't lift 10 to 15 pounds. Yeah, and of course, none of us knew what was going to be offered at the event other than it was going to be a hard event, and it was going to be a couple days long, and you were going to have to do a lot of GORUCK-type stuff. And this event was GORUCK Selection Triple Zero, which was the, the GORUCK Selection Beta class, you can kind of call it. Yeah, I think officially they called it the selection screener and there was no hint that it was going to be a continual thing. Of course, there weren't other events. So Garak hadn't started the process of doing beta events and so on and so forth. But, you know, it was pretty much out of the question for me and I was bummed out. But all of the names of the people that were going were more or less familiar on the tough page at the time. There were a lot of heavy hitters. I think the process of picking out people that had a proven track record of success at events like that really helped motivate the group. And it also helped the HQ and it helped the cadre run evolutions and see for real, what is this going to be like for people who can handle it? 
and not sure how big the initial class was. It was pretty large. You know, I wasn't I wasn't there. You know, it went for a while. Obviously, it was a success. So lots of cool pictures of um, zodiac boat work, water torture, PT, rucking, so on and so forth. And after that, a calendar was released of selection dates. And you know, I didn't I didn't want to wait for one to come around to me. So I signed up for class zero one, which was in December of uh, 2012, 2013, something like that, up in Washington D.C. Yeah, that was a cold one, if I remember correctly. There was snow on the ground. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cold. It wasn't much below freezing, but it hovered right around freezing the whole time, day and night. Obviously, I didn't have a thermometer, but when the ice starts to freeze over, you know, it's a little bit below freezing. And during the day, things would thaw a little bit, and they would freeze over again. So there, there's plenty of water and ice and combinations of the sort. You know, D.C. is a little bit more humid than Colorado is, so that cold gets under your clothes. And, and it was definitely a cold event, and I, I think the cold got to some of the participants. I certainly felt it. But yeah, I mean, the whole time we were thinking about Jack's Beach and seeing pictures of those guys in their ranger panties under the blistering sun. So, I, you know, you're always thinking about what's not right there in front of you. And, you know, we all wish that it was hot sand and sun. And of course, the guys on the beach and screener, I'm sure, were thinking about ice and cold water. Grass is always greener. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that first class was five years ago. That was would you say December 2012? Selection's been around for a long time. It had to have been five years ago, if, if I think about it. That's wild. So you you saw the screener, you were injured during the screener, so you couldn't attend that. And I'm sure you would have had you not been injured since you are definitely a heavy hitter in the GORAC community. So you sign up for class one. What was it like traveling for that event? There still wasn't too much information out about GORAC selection, but that had to have been at least a little stressful packing all your stuff together and flying out to Washington, D.C. <laughs> you know, I, I've been fortunate to be able to travel for the climbing that I've done and, and my you know work and lifestyle. So it's not traveling really that's the issue, but certainly going to something that is shrouded in mystery. You know, I think, first of all, just how the numbers line up with the class. I mean, 000 is definitely class number one. You know, it's certainly a GORIC selection. They call it the screener and people joke. But, you know, anybody that's been to one of these events realizes that they're no joke. So the first class I consider the screener and those eight folks or so that, that finished, they definitely went through a hell of an ordeal. And you know, it was 100% a mystery. And they gave it everything they had. And you know, I hear nothing but good things about that class. And, and of course, I was bummed not to be there. But that's life. You can't do everything. And if you spend all your time looking back at all the shit that you weren't able to do, you forget to look forward and plan for new things that you can do. So yeah, I was bombed. I watched it. You know, I was excited. I really didn't know anybody personally that had gone to that. So I had met Mark Webb and I had spoken with Matt Francev and they really weren't forthcoming about what happened. So so everything that was posted in terms of pictures you knew, but having done a couple of go recommends before that, I mean, you kind of had an idea what was going on. So I signed up for this event. And of course, you know, being a husband and father, I'm going to do this essentially race for fun leaving my family at home. They had been to all of the GORUCK challenges. I think at that point, I had done five, six GORUCKs. So, you know, they had been there to pick me up after each one. And so this was the first GORUCK event that I hadn't, didn't have the family there for. They came to Montana, they went to Utah, here in Colorado. So packing up was kind of tricky. This is before RUCK plate, so bricks. Uh, we had arranged to pick up bricks from participants that were showing up from the Northeast. The class has to wear like a tan shirt. And so one of the participants 
agreed to get people the tan shirts and everything else, you know, was packed in my bag and I booked a flight before and after. The flight window was pretty close. I figured the less time that I was on the ground in DC, the better. So I booked a flight that was maybe six hours before the event started and then booked a flight home something like 12 hours after it was supposed to be over. It's a quick turnaround. And I was excited. I remember flying into DC and jumping on a train. I'd connected with uh, another participant who was going to give me a ride in, but he was still at work. So went over to Whole Foods and got a coffee, sorted through my gear, repacked my bags, but I didn't have a Goruk bag. I didn't own a Goruk bag at that point. So uh, one of the cadre at Goruk, uh, his name is Lou, loaned me his GR2 for the event. And so when we got to selection, I had a duffel bag with all my gear and my change of clothes and everything that I flew out with. And when we rolled up, you know, I stuffed everything into the GR2 and got in line. That's wild. So you're in line waiting for the cadre. I think there were five or six of them for that one. So cadre Lou was there. Cadre Dan Plants. There's, I guess there's now a couple Dan's. Cadre Devin, who's now married to Sophie, who used to work at HQ. Patrick was there. Patrick Moultrip. Cadre Chris, uh, who went by Donnie. Garrett Noonan. That, that might be it. Some heavy hitters. Yeah. Sophie was there and uh, a couple other gals from HQ. So what was the feelings between the participants? You got a ride there with someone who was going to be taking part of the, in the event, but standing there in line, no one really knows what's coming except for what's been seen at the screener. So how's everyone doing standing in line there? You know, I, I don't remember hearing or seeing anything about kind of the in-processing for the event. But, but when we first got there, we, we lined up in rows and, and each of the, um, each cadre was assigned a certain number of participants. We went through a medical screener, the gear shakedown, all that stuff. So it was pretty calm. You know, I think that everybody's rank and file with their gear out being inspected. All the cadre came by and double, triple checked everything. So that was pretty calm. Remember, it takes a long time to go through however many people are there, 50, 60 people. So essentially just standing there trying to stay warm and then we went straight into the PT test. I, I mean, you know, once you went through the medical screen, the gear check and all that garbage, we pretty much just kicked it off and let it rip. We did two minutes push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups. Then we, that was followed up by a five mile run. Immediately after that was a 12 mile ruck march and the evening continued to get colder and colder. And uh, I don't remember a whole lot of like pre-event chatter amongst the participants you know there wasn't a lot of chest beating and everything was pretty calm and pretty collected it was it was very organized i noticed that compared to the events that i'd done and uh you know once things start with a pt test i mean we, we kind of had an idea that it was coming but again like people signed up and they wanted to be tested but it wasn't something that you could train specifically for so that's really all you knew at that point right it was test yourself at this event bring this gear and show up at this time at this location. There wasn't really yeah. tons of documentation out there. I think Dan might have had an article at the time. I remember Cadre Dan wrote an article about training for selection, about how he trained. But I think that was really the only information out there for participants. I do remember he, he writes a lot of really good posts and has a lot of cool... I mean, you know, anytime he posts something, it's worth reading because he doesn't share things unless they're worth reading. So... I do remember that. I don't remember if it was before my event or before events in the future because you started to have some pretty atrocious fail rates during the PT test. And I think he was trying to help people out by saying, look, you know, if you're going to run five miles in 40 minutes and you can't run five miles in 40 minutes, you could save yourself 500 bucks and not sign up. But yeah, we came, we did push ups, we did sit ups, we ran, 
and then we rucked, and then the event started more or less. After that, the class was still pretty big. They didn't, at the time, there wasn't kind of what they call the standard. So people that passed those numbers or didn't pass those numbers were allowed to continue. And I believe that was how it was done at zero zero. And I think it continued that way to maybe the fifth or sixth class when the P test was standardized and there was a pass fail component to the PT test before you could continue. And um, that really didn't change the event much, but it did make the classes a lot smaller. Yeah. Well, honestly, if you can't get through the PT test at the beginning of selection, there's a probably a very good chance you're not going to get through the 48-hour event. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it is what it is. I think if somebody tells you you have to do this or you can't continue, then you make sure you can do it and you continue. If they, if they don't tell you that, then you don't know and, and you do what you can. Certainly, there's some strategy by not overdoing it. I mean, there was a guy at the run, for example, the five-mile run, and I, I think the guy who came in first beat the cadre to the finish line. He did something like five miles in like 24 minutes or something. It was really fast. It was one of those like, holy fuck, but, but he was pretty much shot. He didn't make it much longer than the first few minutes of the welcome party because he kind of gave it everything he had. So if you can run five miles in 40 minutes and, and you run it in 25 minutes, you know, you might be juiced out for, for the long haul. And I, I can relate to that. I mean, because most of us thought it was a, more of a team event. So well, kind of like team week. So you're working together, you're helping each other out, and you're certainly putting out, but you also need to look out for each other. And and that's not what GORUCK selection is all about. But of course, it took a few classes for GORUCK to be able to manage that expectation because up to that point, every event that they had had been about the team. So of course, all these people were focused more on the team than about trying to stand out as, as individual performers. So uh, definitely in D.C. at zero one, people were still focused on the group and the team and trying to make sure that the team that was still there was working together well rather than do what they tell you and perform it as an individual. Yeah, it's tough. Like you said, everything up until that point had been GORUCK challenges, which are definitely team events. And even the triple zero selection class the majority of the pictures that they posted of that were the group carrying a couple of Zodiacs, the group doing PT in the water. There weren't too many individual pictures like what you see now with one person on the long rock or one person getting a ton of PT in the water. So I think the, the cool thing about some of that stuff is that you can be sent out on a run on a rock, but with, if you've got to pick up a log as a class, you have to work as a team together. And so that doesn't need to be explained all that much. For you to walk and move with a boat, for you to walk and move with a log, you have to develop teamwork pretty quickly or somebody gets smoked. So those are nice because they kind of speak for themselves. But you can see now with the evolution of selection, there isn't anything like that anymore. You don't carry a boat as a class because they don't want the class performing as a team as much. The evolutions have been whittled down to let's test the individual. Of course, with some of the evolutions, you get to a very small class very quickly now. And so, you know, the more recent classes have had, you know, one or two finishers at best because they're testing the individual pretty strongly. Yeah. You see a lot of, instead of one, you know, giant log for the class, it's a ton of individual logs and everyone gets one. Yeah. And of course they did that at, at zero one, but we also got a big log. And the problem is, you know, the, the big log, there, there's a point about 18 hours in or 20 hours in where, where we had, I think we'd been down to, you know, around 20 people or something like that. And we picked up a big log. There's a few people just not shouldering the log, but the cadre were able to identify those people and just kick them out. They were able to do that. They were able to kind of sneak through a little bit. And now when 
you know, you have a bunch of rounds and you just got to move those rounds up and down hills. It's pretty clear. You you move move it or you don't. Absolutely. So 48-hour event, we just talked about the first welcome party, getting into it. How quickly did the, the class dwindle down? Because there were only three finishers in your class. So about what time did those three remain? Uh, it, it took a little under 24 hours. And I think that's the case for pretty much all the classes. You know, I'd say within the first 12 hours, you're down to a few people. Uh, I'm not sure there was a, a class that had a lot of people make it through probably the first 12 hours. And for us, we were down to about 20 after all the welcome party stuff have a good grasp on how long it took, but I, w- I would probably say like after the PT test, we probably had a welcome party that lasted three or four hours. End of that, we all picked up logs and wood and stuff. And by the end of that, the class was, was small, probably 20 people. And those 20 people made it into the, we started in the evening, right? So it got dark really quick and we did our PT test. Our PT test lasted maybe with the admin stuff, maybe five hours. And then the sun was coming up after the welcome party People were starting to drop out pretty quickly as soon as the sun started to go down again. So I guess I would say now, thinking it was probably right around the 20, 24-hour mark, we were down to three. Yeah, it's got to be tough. You watch it go down the first time, and you know the sun comes up, and you feel a little bit better. But then just watching it sink again, it's got to be something different. Yeah, I mean, people respond differently to stressors, so it's too hard to say you know what's going to happen to a class, but. But everybody has different stressors and everybody's able to deal with adversity differently. So if, if you're motivated and you're psyched to be there, you know, nothing gets in your way psychologically, or at least it does less. If you're there because you're tough and you think you're, you're physically tough, that, that's pretty easy to wear down. But for us in particular, the, it was the cold that was kind of the enemy. You know, the irony is that the casualty pretty much just warmed us up. And the environment cooled us off. And when we had the PT, it was kind of welcome because you were able to get your core temperature back up. But throwing us in ice water and getting cold uh, repeatedly really sucked the life out of a lot of people. And I can honestly say that I felt like I got so cold repeatedly that I was struggling to get my temperature up. I certainly noticed that myself. I'd gotten cold and warm and cold and warm so many times that I was losing the ability to warm myself back up. And it kept taking longer and longer. And I wasn't sure at some point if I would be able to warm myself back up. Of course, I didn't know what would happen. But I noticed, you know, maybe it took four hours, five hours for the last dunk to kind of recover from. I thought, oh, shit, you know, if we dunk again, it might be 10 hours. I might not warm up. That was a curious feeling. That's something that I had never felt to that extent before. That's wild. So with feelings like that, was there ever a time when you were questioning if you would be pulled from the event? It wasn't that. It was one of those uh, realizations of, of, wow, I've never experienced this at this level. You know, you're in no man's land kind of for, right. for your personal experience. You say, gosh, you know, when you've been through something, then in the future, anytime you get to that point, you know exactly what's going to happen. But when you've been, when you're somewhere that you've never been before, you don't have a frame of reference. And that's definitely happened for me there. I was in mystery zone and fortunately was able to just kind of keep going that's wild some people weren't able to do that and they, they were pulled patrick pulled at least one guy or two people because of hypothermia a lot of people dropped one thing that happens at Gorex selection that you see a lot of is um people quitting and then posting something like i was med dropped or i was dropped for one reason or another and, and they dropped themselves 
you can't keep people from posting their version of uh, the GRT version of AAR, which is essentially a long run through of what they yeah. did and why they did that. But Patrick was, he was there monitoring people's core temperatures. And there was a couple of people that were very, very cold and he did drop them. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get at. You get dunked. You can tell that it takes four hours for your body to recover. The cadre are very good at monitoring the warmth and how, how the participants are doing. So, Oh, yeah. It's their job to watch the class and see how they're performing. And they're not there to hurt anybody. They're there to test people. And they're there to test people to see whether you know they have what it takes to do what they signed up for. And, of course, nobody wants anybody to get hurt. So they're watching that very, very closely. And, and when it's cold and people are tired, uh, they do a great job of making sure people are safe and are able to perform at a level that's safe for them. But you know, nobody wants anybody to get hurt. And right. Unfortunately, like you know, when you when you push the limits like that, sometimes people do cross the line, and they did the responsible thing by dropping a couple people. And I've got to say that you've done a lot in terms of events and different types of events and those kinds of experiences up to this point. So for this event to kind of find a new limit for yourself, an area where you think my body's never been here. This is interesting. What's going to happen? That really says a lot. You know, it's crazy because like, let's say it was 30 degrees. Well, shit, man. I mean, I've been well below zero for extended periods of time, but, but I mean, gear is capable of allowing me to do what I need to do in sub-zero conditions, you know, double digit sub-zero conditions. And I've been wet before and I've been in the ocean for long periods of time before, but at 30 degrees performing at that level with minimal calories, continuously getting wet and then you know, getting out of the water and maybe not moving a lot, getting cold and colder and colder and colder. And there's only so much time before, you know, you go into that kind of state where your body's not able to rewarm itself and, and it doesn't have to be that cold. And we realized, I mean, 30 degrees isn't really that cold, but yeah, I definitely pushed my limits that event i hope i don't have to push him further but maybe i shouldn't say that but but you know it's a weird feeling yeah i'm sure so at first you know the screener was a big deal class one i don't know if it was a big deal because i was there class two three four for a while go it was very very popular people were really excited you know it's kind of like the go rock super bowl and there was a lot of hype and a lot of excitement people were coming but a lot of people were going to it Know, unable to get through the first few hours so so you saw some pretty atrocious drop rates and then it entered a phase where there was a lot of black classes meaning nobody was able to continue and everybody went home empty-handed and then some of the hype about selection faded you know now it's hard to tell if people even know it's much of a thing yeah at one point there was six or eight selection classes in a year yeah i mean it seemed like every month they were rolling out a new one I think logistically, you know, it's expensive to fly cadre somewhere and they put in a lot of effort planning their routes. And, you know, if 10 people show up and nobody finishes, it doesn't seem like it's worth the time. So pulling it back to Jacksonville when they had that big class, you know, whenever that was a year or two ago. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I know that there was one event where no one in the class made it past. I think it was 12 or 16 hours. And I know that was a little upsetting to some of the cadre because they had planned out a 48-hour event and they had scouted areas and done a you know a ton of legwork. You've run events. There's a lot of legwork that goes into planning something like this. 
and no one really made it even a quarter of the way through their plan. So I think yeah. once that happened is when they started consolidating. They've run that the big classes out of Jacksonville, and also gets a reputation of I work at GoRec, but but I don't um, work at Selection. So I, I don't know why, but I, I can understand. You know, if you've got an event that regularly people don't pass, that doesn't seem very exciting. Whereas if you've got a huge class and a couple people pass, that's much more exciting. Right. Now, statistically speaking, that pass rate is not going to change much, but at least you'll have people finishing. And I like the idea of having events like like selection, but again, you know, it's not my decision to, to have events like that. I mean, people, it's, there's definitely a place for it. And people want there are certain types of people that want things like that that aren't offered as much. So you know, there'll always be some people who are looking to test themselves in ways that they aren't able to be tested regularly on their own. And this is one of those options that's not cheesy and, and uh, really does give you a good long look at yourself. Absolutely. Back when the death race was around, some people really enjoyed the death race. Um, Seal Fit offers uh, Kokoro, which is kind of a mental, physical toughness test, but there really aren't any other events that are offering that gruesome look inside your soul you know, for no other reason than just to get a good long look at yourself and, and what you're made of. You know, there's no prize. When the guys are going through SFAS or BUDS or, you know, whatever the selection processes are that they had been through in their military careers, that, that's a job application, right? You're interviewing for a job. So at the end of that, they get to do what they went to go do. But at GORUCK, there's no job waiting for you. There's no medal. I mean, there's a patch. But there's no prize, there's no purse, so it really is a personal thing. You don't get anything fancy other than what you get personally out of it. There's no fame and glory and uh, no job. There's no you know more exciting training that follows. So uh, you know I think that's pretty cool. You know if you want to test yourself, come test yourself. But it only means what it means to you, right? Right. And and if you're the type of person that likes to do that stuff, then once you once you do it, then you move on to something else. It's not an entrance into some awesome thing, you know. It's a point along, hopefully, a path that leads you to bigger and better things. All the people that have finished are pretty much that type of person. Not not to say that people that don't pass aren't that type of person, but but everybody that's that's passed are people that like to do things, like to test themselves, and they don't stop being that way. You know, they find the next objective and they go towards it. And they're continuously testing and pushing themselves in ways that makes them grow as a person. I think that's really cool. That's really unique in terms of an event and a service that you can provide, you know, essentially simply by showing up and you guide yourself towards that. It's a great look on it. I don't do things just to do them. I do things that I feel like are going to make me a bigger and better person. I like that. And, uh, and, and ultimately, the thing that drives me is are my kids. And I always bounce back to, you know, how is this going to reflect on, you know, their opinion of me and my ability to be a better parent? You know, that was in my mind during selection when times were low. That's in my mind at events when times get rough. And people say, like, what do you think about what, you know, it, it's a no-brainer. I, I just think about my bond with my family, and there's really nothing else. You know, I kind of laugh. You know, people are like, wow, you know, you, you signed up for selection and you flew out to D.C. and you paid, you know, 350 bucks or something like that. That shit, man, I spent a lot more than that, you know, because you have to get gear, shoes, 
uh, you got to buy a plane ticket and all that shit. You know, it's, you're talking about like it's probably closer to two thousand bucks. I'm like, could you imagine like spending two thousand dollars and then just dropping out of an event? Like, shit, man, I, I couldn't face my wife. You know, like, yeah, I just blew two thousand bucks for, for nothing. So my not as serious joking answer is like, could you imagine going home after wasting two thousand dollars? But I came home with a two thousand dollar piece of Velcro. You know, what got me through it was just thinking about my kids and that's the case for everything. And I, I think any parent out there probably feels the same way. It doesn't take much. You know, it's not, not the type of person when, when you turn on um, shows like, I don't watch a lot of TV, but but Alone, if, if you've ever watched Alone, it's a pretty cool show. And as you know, I'm a cadre and I teach survival and navigation at expedition events and so on and so forth. So I'm into those kinds of things. And I think Alone is a pretty good, authentic show that, that really does test people. But I'm always surprised when you know, somebody drops out the first 24 hours because they miss their wife or they miss their kids. And I can't relate to that. Not that I don't miss my family, but God, you know, I couldn't face them coming home being like, oh, I missed you so much. I came back after 24 hours and I just gave up everything that I committed to. What kind of lesson does that teach the people that look to you for saying, I'm going to commit to something and do it? Or, yeah, of course you miss the people that are around you, but there's a bigger reason, right? And you can't just always run home and say, you know, I, I was going to do that, but... You've already put in all the hours training, which is a lot of time away from family. You've already spent the money for the gear, the entry into the event, the plane ticket. You've already flown out there. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, fuck, yeah, of course you're going to miss your family. And they're going to think you're an asshole because you just went to do something and bailed out after 24 hours, like, what the fuck? You know, they want you to, uh, or go and finish, or go and, you know, do what you said you were going to commit to, but but as soon as you fall through on that commitment, and what does that say about your ability to commit to something that's tough? So, you know, in terms of GORUCK selection, it's the same thing. You know, you train, and you get ready, and nowadays, everything, it's kind of a cookbook, right? You got to be able to run. You know, I'd say, if you're listening, and you're thinking about training for selection, throw on your running shoes, and go run. Go run five miles. Write down your time. Was it faster than 40 minutes? Awesome. You don't need to work on running. Go do two minutes of push-ups. And you do the requisite number of push-ups. Great. And you do the requisite number of sit-ups. Great. And you do the rock. Great. Now do two of those. Can you still do them? Right? Any combination of the two. Can you do two minutes of sit-ups immediately after two minutes of push-ups? Awesome. If not, I'll work on it. If you can run five miles and not do the rock, Right, you got to get a little bit stronger, get a little bit better endurance. You know, if you're carrying 45 pounds plus water, figure out how much that weighs. And I would train, you know, those standards with that weight because you're it's right off the bat. So that's what your ruck's going to weigh. I wouldn't get a 100 pound ruck and do the 12 mile rucks with with 100 pounds because 12 mile ruck you're not doing it with 100 pounds. You're doing it, you know, with 50 something pounds. And until you can do the whole PT test, right? When you can do the whole PT test then I would register. If you can't do the PT test and you know you're going to get dropped, and people are like, oh, yeah, well, I missed the run by one minute. Well, fuck, dude. One minute or one hour, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's not acceptable. You know, if you, if you can't always do it, then, then raise the bar. And honest to God, like five miles in 40 minutes is not. You know, I know a lot of exceptional runners, but I would say that most runners wouldn't consider that really running. You know, that's like a jog. There are certainly plenty of people that can't do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're signing up for an event, that that's one of the benchmarks that you have to jump over. In, ter- in the context of running as a sport, that's jogging. 
right? right. Now, a lot of runners probably can't throw on 60 pounds and rock 12 miles, but yep. this is an event that tells you exactly what you need to do. So you need to do that. And it'll take you a little bit to get used to. But if, if you can't do that, then get to the point where you can do it. I mean, you should be able to run five miles in 30 minutes, you know, or 35 minutes. You know, anybody that's kind of a good runner, you know, you're probably talking about between 30 and 35 minutes. A good rucker should be doing the ruck in three hours. And that's not even a good rucker. I would say if you can't do 12 miles in 30 minutes or in three hours, like that's four miles an hour. You know, that, that's basically a walk. Go to New York City and just look at grandmas walking around. They're going faster than that. Again, I, I don't do push-ups and I don't really do sit-ups either, but they're asking you to do push-ups and sit-ups. You better do push-ups and sit-ups. And then have a good reason. Do some long events. I would lead up to it. You know, after my recovery from surgery, I did a few go rucks leading into it. You know, and then I spent a lot of time alpine climbing up in Rocky Mountain National Park going into it. And then I went out and surfed for a little while at the beach to get some oxygen um, into my tissues and then went out to D.C. And I think that, you know, when I talk to the 20-something finisher, it's a different attitude. You know, there's not like, well, you know. I can't do this or I can't do that. It's just not a question. So I've never done a challenge, you know, a 12 hour go ruck challenge, you know, plus or minus, you know, seven hours, whatever, you know, the actual times are. Never done one. I felt good after. I mean, uh, my body is pretty wrecked after a challenge. And yet, you know, we jumped straight to selection. I didn't feel good after that either. I don't think you don't need to baby step to selection by doing an HTL. And as a matter of fact, it could cripple you or not. I just don't think you need to do that kind of stuff. And I, and I do believe in recovery. I don't think that going harder, harder, harder all the time is good for you. You know, your body needs to adapt and to, to adapt, it needs to have hard stimulus and it needs to recover and it needs to have different types of stimuli for you to grow. So I think, you know, doing an HTL doesn't mean you're going to pass election. Right. But that's my personal opinion, you know. I mean, you know, you got dudes that are, you know, I say dude, I call my mom dude. So you have people that, that go to, a, you know, a lot of GORIC events, but they're team events. So you're not testing yourself as much as you are. 48 hours passes in 48 hours. I mean, you know, 48 hours from now, we're all going to be doing something. So how do you fill it? You know, you fill it with all the shit that you fill it with. But if you fill it by going to an event, 48 hours is going to be over. And you're going to look back and you're going to say, did I fulfill my commitment that I made for the last 48 hours? Well, my commitment is to you know, have lunch and go for a jog and get eight hours of sleep. Then I did it. But if, if I've committed to 48 hours of you know PT and walk around with a backpack, then I'm just going to do that. I mean, 48 hours isn't that long. And you make a commitment to yourself. That's one of those things that, that personally you have to figure out what your triggers are. But the way I see it is that it's a time reference and it's an output reference that you need to know for yourself. And I mean, there's people that pass the death race in something crazy, like 90 hours, 72 hours or something like that, but they weren't able to, to pass go selection. So it's not necessarily just, can you put out for a long time? Cause these people did put out for longer than go selection, but can you do it in the context of this event? I just train for this event. If I can sit down and play poker for 12 hours, that doesn't mean I can do a good job at chess for 12 hours. So, you know, I ran a marathon and, and like, you know, was super sore because I'd never run half that far at the time that I ran 
my first marathon and, and, uh, you know, that happened in a couple hours. I was as sore as I was after a challenge. I think that, you know, what you need to do is wrap your head around yourself. And if you've never done anything closely related to that and you still want to do it, it's pretty clear what you need to do. You know, you need to get out there with a ruck, make sure you can ruck 12 miles, make sure you can run five, make sure you can do some push-ups, make sure you can do a hard workout and recover afterwards. You know, I would say like, you know, if you can work out hard for an hour and feel good the next day, awesome. And if you can work out really hard for an hour and, and you're wrecked, then you need to work on your body's ability to recover after high output. Before selection started, a lot of people were into doing workouts. And, and at that time, I was introduced to the MRF. And, and the MRF is, is, is a workout where you do, you run a mile and then you do 100 pull-ups, uh, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then you run a mile. And people were doing that like crazy and trying to figure out like, what can you do as a group? The tough page was new and we we're this community of people that were all excited about doing cool stuff. And so, you know, for the sake of itself, people were doing this Murph thing over and over and over again. I remember just loving the Murph. In a couple months, I probably did the Murph workout 20 times or something. Like I just, I thought it was spectacular. And, you know, I remember the first time I did it, I was pretty sore. And by the end of it, you know, I wasn't as sore and times are getting better and so on and so forth. And that's the kind of thing that you're going to be thrown at repeatedly during selection is how hard can you go and still recover in a short period of time so that you can do it again and do it again and do it again. And if you're really strong, but you're not used to that type of recovery to do it again, of course, you're going to get a lot of tissue breakdown, which leads itself to rhabdo, or you're going to not have the glycogen stores, or you're going to burn your glycogen too hard. I mean, those are the kind of things that are expected of you, whether you know it or not. So you could be strong, but not have the endurance. So you could have the endurance, but not have the strength. But you certainly need to have the ability to recover, collect yourself, and do it again. And do that over and over and over and over again for 48 hours. And so for the year prior, of course, some of it was recovery for me. But I remember not knowing it or not realizing its effect on things like this. You know, we were doing a MRF every day and feeling great. But I was also doing some recovery. I remember trying to do all of the P90X workouts, one per hour, every hour, till they were all done. These personal challenges. You know, so so in the couple of years prior, we had done a lot of power endurance type workouts that really lend themselves well to these 48, 72 hour high output events. And of course, if you're not used to that, you do one and you're pretty wrecked. But you can develop that type of strength and that type of recovery with a little effort. And a little bit of time and commitment, you know, but I, I think that, you know, six months, you should be able to get most relatively fit people ready for an event like selection and pass, but you can't really get their minds right. That's where uh, you know, they say it's mostly mental, but it's mostly mental once the physical's taken care of. And I think there's a lot more information out there on the physical than there is on, on how to properly prep your mind or well, I think, you know, there's a lot of workout things that people do and training programs and all this stuff. And and I guess that you expect things like that to, to fall out. But the problem is, like, that's just training the body. And you can train your body a number of ways, but it's pretty hard to train the mind. And I think that's absolutely a requirement for a lot of things is that your mind has to be right. And getting your mind right requires doing things that's going to get your body right also. So some of these workouts... You know, if you just follow them blindly, you're not doing any mental work. And the mental work has to happen. And it's an event like Gorek Selection where you see people that have 
all of the physical attributes, but not enough of the mental attributes come in and drop out. Think, holy shit, man, I can't believe that guy dropped or that gal dropped. And, and the mind just wasn't in the right place. So if you commit to doing the mental work along with the physical work, you're going to do well. The physical work and workout thing, I wouldn't bet on you. I mean, look at this McGregor fight, right? He's got the mental game and he's pretty fit and he jumps into a, to a sport that he's not an expert at and does really well, right? I don't know if you watched that fight. You have this guy who's got a remarkable mental game jump into a field that he probably, you know, under other circumstances would never get a shot and really did hold his own. I mean, that's to show you how good the mental game is. There's probably, you know, a million guys out there who are physically strong enough to win a boxing fight, but it's the mental game that really gets you the rest of the way. You know, to me, that that's what stood out in this fight the most is that, yeah, I mean, everybody's fit, whatever, but to me, you know, that's what stood out there with that, with uh, McGregor's his mental game. But I was really impressed. I'd never watched a, a fight like that before. And, you know, of course, you know, you're watching it thinking, well, it takes a lifetime of training to get the muscle memory and the fine-tuned motor skills to be able to do something in perfection. You figure if boxing was that easy, you wouldn't win a lot of money for it. So I'm not a boxer, but it doesn't take a boxer to realize that, that um, there wouldn't be money in something that was really easy to do. And yet you have this guy who really has no business doing it come in and do really well. That's got to be entirely a mental game. And the same thing with uh, with a lot of these events that really test the mental and physical. I think that that uh, you, know, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily call them athletes, even though they're athletic. I mean, if you want to test yourself as an athlete, you go to an event, you know, like an Ironman, and uh, you know you've got plenty of opportunity to prove yourself as an athlete. Right, get on the podium. But as an athletic mental event, the endurance challenges and those kinds of things really shine. But what they're showing is that you know you've got mentally tough people who have a certain amount of athleticism. If if that makes any sense, that that's what I like about these events is that you know, you're not proving yourself as an athlete, but you are proving that you're mentally tough and physically capable of performing at a certain level, even though it sucks. I say suck kind of tongue in cheek because if it really sucked, you wouldn't do it, right? So we all kind of like this stuff. You know, it's not really suffering if you signed up for it and you do it all the time. Uh, we, it is rewarding, right? You get something out of it, but you get something other than exercise. You know, if I had my say, there'd be one or two selections a year and they'd be really big classes and, you know, everybody would always want to do them to try to get through that hurdle and then there would be another one, you know, maybe a harder one. I wish they could have had you know, next level selection where you just showed up ready to go and you couldn't prepare for it, but they had a list of requirements that, you know, it was on you to decide whether you were capable of doing it. But let's say, you know, you can, ha you have to be able to hike 70 miles. You have to be able to carry 60 pounds. You have to be able to land nav. You have to be able to purify your own water, and do a number of skills. And now they just drop you off and they give you a little piece of paper that says, you know, here's where you have to be in this amount of time. We'll see you there. And if you don't get there, you go home. You know, nobody's yelling at you. Nobody's screaming at you. It's just you and a clock and an objective. And you just run through all those hurdles. And a couple of days later, there's either people at the finish line or not. And everybody weeded themselves out by proving that they could walk the walk that they signed up for. And I think that would be really cool. Probably not marketable. But I think that would be that would be fun to test people's metal saying, you know, can you land that? Can you purify water? Can you find your own food? Can you carry this weight? Can you, you know, deal with unknowns 
and do it all on a certain time hack. And can you prove it? And you know, we'll spend doesn't matter how long, you know, you just say like, Hey, this is going to, you know, if you're successful, you'll be out in the woods or mountains or desert or jungle or, you know, wherever it is to pass, you know, you'll be out five days, seven days. It really doesn't matter. And then uh, everything else is just you proving that you could walk the walk. That That's pretty cool. The team stuff is, is kind of interesting, but it would have to be more interesting than just selection plus team. Best Ranger style. I mean, the best ranger is the best ranger. I would want to see something different and something that raised the bar, not not lowered the bar. Right. Maybe something with shooting. I like the idea of events that, that push the limits rather than pull them back and be more conservative. So I'd rather see things that were a little riskier, a little bit harder, a little bit longer, uh, that asked more of the participants rather than more of the same. Let's just like mix up this big bull and normal and see what comes out of it. And I'm not into the bull and normal. So we've talked a lot about mental toughness and just getting that mindset right is there anything that you do personally to to check your mental toughness or to to check your mind you know i wrote a little blurb after selection saying you know this is what i did you know for you to train the way i do you'd have to come out and just kind of live with me on a daily basis and i i still mean that i think that everybody has their own way of training and it's not wrong oh, so for instance I'm not a super, huge fan of dropping names, but obviously, if you if you look, when I pass election, I pass with a guy named Dave, and I pass with a guy named Olaf. And all three of us are different, and we all trained differently, and we all did well enough to pass. And there are other finishers that trained different. No, nobody trained the same. So that's one knock against the, you know, I bought XYZ selection training program. I don't know if anybody that's passed actually did XYZ and passed. So what I do probably won't help the majority of listeners. And the reason I say that is that, you know, my life has certain obstacles that I have to face and deal with, and that's mental toughness. The way I grew up made my mental game pretty strong to begin with in this type of discipline. And it's not something that you could just say and listen to a podcast and try to replicate on your own, but yeah, and yeah, you've got a lot of adversity. You've got a lot of things that you have to do for a reason. And as long as you're aware psychologically of the reason that you're doing things for, you'll cultivate mental toughness. If you have to wake up early, then you think, you know, I don't want to wake up early, but I'm going to, and you do it. And you repeat all of those things. Somebody said something rude to me. Awesome. You know, they probably got shit going on in their life and that's their, it's not going to get to me. Um, it's cold outside. Great. It's cold outside. But I'm going to deal with it. And as long as you're psychologically aware of the things that you don't really like or didn't choose, and you view it as something that you know is helping you, and you're aware of it, you'll get stronger. A good thing about climbing and mental toughness is that you set an objective, and largely those objectives are just out of reach. So you have to overcome that mental, psychological discomfort to achieve something that you aren't physically or mentally able to do. You know, sometimes physically you're able to do a move, but can you do it when if you don't do it, you're going to fall 40 feet? Well, it's going to make probably going to make you a little nervous. And that allows you to cultivate and improve your resistance to the physical manifestations of fear. Your, your body has to be fit to be able to perform certain movements. But now you're aware of the fact that now if you don't perform these movements, you're going to get hurt. Right? Or you're going to fall and it's going to be scary. 
or a number of things can happen if you don't do these movements that you know you can do now, but you're not quite sure if you can do it when you're scared, you know, really scared, you slowly develop the ability to control your body. You know, you don't shake when you're nervous. You don't sweat. You're able to maintain your breathing. You're able to maintain your concentration enough to be able to put your body exactly where it needs to be. And that fine-tuned motor skill, it really helps you when things get stressful because you maintain that relaxed day. I think that's why a lot of shooters nowadays are you know, doing a bunch of push-ups and burpees and stuff running around before they shoot because you know, your body gets in a stressful situation. It starts to behave differently. And just like you can train it with shooting, you know, things like climbing can help generate that type of body, mental, physical control. If you're in those circumstances, of course, indoors, you don't get that. But you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors doing things like that. And, and I think that helps a lot. Uh, same thing with surfing, I guess, you know, and every time I go out surfing, I, when the waves are big, it's a little scary, right? But if you panic, you know, the damn thing is just going to beat you up and drown you and eventually able to keep cool and keep it under control and drop in and do what you need to do and have fun. But until you get that mental, physical kind of partnership, things get the best of you. So whatever it is that someone does, you could probably find a way for them to train that mental, physical junction, but it's probably a little different than the way they do it. And a lot of people aren't receptive to that. If it was good, they, they wouldn't be asking the questions and it have already passed election. I like that. Just make a short story. <laughs> You know, whatever it is, and I, I don't do everything, but odds are, you know, this community, they, I'll have an outlet. And I would say that there's probably a way for them to couple the two. You know, I also made another post right afterwards, like, you know, the don't don't take life's moving walkway. You know, it, it was one of those things that, you know, you walk on these, I was at the airport, you know, they got the moving walkways. And, and it's like, you can just walk 100 yards or you can stand on this thing and it'll push you 100 yards. But if you're walking, you're pretty much going at the same speed as this thing. You know, I get it. People have luggage and, and all this stuff and it's fancy and, and but you don't really need it, you know, but once you get used to it, then you're frustrated that it's not there. And it's like, man, you know, we have feet and we have all this stuff to make life easier. But at some point, if you make everything easy, then what is there to do? Right. I mean, right. you know, instead of walking to work, you drive there so you can work a little more. And if you don't like to work, then, you know, you go to the grocery store to buy food so you don't have to grow it yourself so that you can take that energy that you have and apply it somewhere else. But if you're not taking the energy that you've saved doing something and applying it somewhere else, then you're kind of doing yourself and humanity a disservice. So, you know, you can't tell people what they need to be doing, but there are a lot of conveniences in life and those conveniences should be affording you more time to do what you should be doing, whatever that is, rather than just filling yourself with conveniences. And then, then what, you know, I don't like <laughs> Everything and everything makes life so easy for what? You know, then you spend all your time worrying about what the next convenience you're going to get that life becomes an inconvenience. Seems bogus to me. You know what I mean? You should be working on something and pushing yourself some way and using the conveniences elsewhere give you more time to work on those things that, that are making you a bigger, better person. Once you've made those commitments, then you do everything you can to honor that commitment. And as soon as it's done, it's over. Like it doesn't mean anything, something that you've done in the past and you need something new in the future. And I would hope that the people that I'm close with and the selection finishers that, that I'm close with are all working towards an objective in their future. And you don't find them just sitting around talking about how awesome it was to pass election. You would hope that 
there's something that they've got set up, you know, for the next few months, for the next year, for the next, you know, 10 years, they've got these plans that are always forward looking. Use your experiences to adjust and accomplish those goals because, you know, these, these types of things really mean nothing. That makes sense. Looking at selection, not as a, the end of the road, but just one more stop along the way to the next thing. It was the thing, you know, five years ago. And since then, there's been a lot of other things. And each each of those things you learn from, and you, but you need to apply it towards something in the future or the present moment, which is, right, it's hard to do. But, you know, live now and live, you know, and prepare for the future and learn from the past, but, but don't live in the past. I like that. So speaking of the past quickly, and just a, a probably a question I should have asked a while ago, how did you feel when you finished selection, thinking back five years ago? I was confused because I thought we were getting in the water. We, we were, we'd come up the long walk and I'd hurt my foot. And so, you know, it was, it, was hurt, it hurt. And I remember everybody was, was screaming and yelling and it was dark and they were telling us to get in the Potomac. So we were going to the Potomac. But, you know, because I was so cold, I had a compressible down coat. And I had pulled it out of my dry sack because I really needed to maintain that core temperature. And, and, and I thought, shit, you know, if this gets wet, I'm fucked. So we were going over to the Potomac and we we're bear crawling. And I remember asking the cadre, can I take my jacket off? They're thinking like, you know, obviously you don't want to show everybody your cards. But at that point it was like, man, I got to get my jacket off and get it in a dry sack. And I was hoping I had 30 seconds to do that. And I remember he smiled, like thinking it's pretty funny, but I was ready to just jump in the Potomac. And we, we got up to the edge and I was just taking my clothes off to jump in. And right as like, I think somebody grabbed me and turn, turned us around. And then they moved us a little bit and they were doing some PT and there was a little bit of confusion. But you know, now I realized they were just putting the flag up. And then they had this huge fire. With, they threw some gasoline. They were using gasoline to make this huge fire. And there was a few moments during selection that were confusing, one of which they threw us in a trailer. Everybody was freezing. And we, we went into, Jason had this trailer. They put in a space heater and then they shut it. So it was pitch black. And we went from cold to like 90 degrees. It was like hot yoga, like 100% humidity, hot as shit, pitch black. And instantly, I think everybody fell asleep. And then they opened the doors. There's lots of noise and smoke and all sorts of shit and uh, super confusing. And this was one of those confusing moments at the end. And then it was over and I was super confused still. Like, wait a minute. Like, are they fucking with us? Thinking there was going to be something else. And uh, there's fire everywhere and people. And it was just kind of like one of those, like, you're in a daze. Not quite sure what's going on. So I pulled out, like, I grabbed my rock and I pulled a bunch of shit out of it to put my jacket into it because I was like, all right, we're going into the water. So it was over and they gave it, you know, and I remember just like pulling out my dry bag and dump it, you know, try to get my freaking jacket and a bunch of other stuff into a dry bag. And then we jumped in the car and went back to the team house in DC and um, got some food. I think I fell asleep eating it. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. That's wild. That's yeah. wild. You said that you, you booked your flights, your tail end flight, pretty close to the end of the event. Was that any issue getting out of there? We had to do like a little AAR the next morning, and then I just went to the airport and flew home. Not bad. I probably would have been sleeping still, slept through the flight. You know, after things like that, I don't sleep very well for a week or so. Anytime I do something really physical, no matter how tired I am, I tend not to sleep very well. So I, it took you know maybe a week of sleeping like two, three hours at a time to, to catch back up. I think that those big things, they have a pretty significant impact on your your glands and your hormones. 
And so it's it's not just, uh, hey, I'm going to sleep and eat something and be fine. For me, at least, it affects me for a decent amount of time before everything's functioning right again. That makes sense. My feet were pretty messed up. I so bet. I kind of hobbled around. I couldn't, I couldn't wear shoes for a week or so because my feet were so swollen. Whew. Probably was a fun airplane ride. Yeah. Actually, after selection, a few months later, they had the first heavy, which was Bragg Heavy 01. Probably the best plane flight I've had post-GORUCK event was after the Bragg Heavy. And I remember, you know, we were filthy and pretty much 100% disgusting. And uh, California GRT Bill and I were at the airport. We were, you know, we'd kind of like hosed off and, and stuff, but we were still pretty gross. And when I flew home, I didn't realize how disgusting I was till I got to my house. And my wife met me out front and she saw me and within five feet of me. It was like she stopped and said, oh, my God, I can smell you. And, you know, it's just disgusting. And I had to strip off all my clothes and get hosed off you know, in front of the house before I could come inside the house and then put all my gear into a contractor bag and then took it to a laundromat rather than use it on our washer and dryer. It was, it was really disgusting. And some of the stuff that I had with me was permanently stained from the clay on the tank trail. So that was probably the most disgusting plane flight I had. And I, I, I sat between two ladies and I just fell asleep. But, but they... They were pretty offended. You could tell that, that I smelled pretty gross by the looks on their faces, but I didn't put two and two together until I got home. Um, oh, man. That yeah, was, was pretty gross. Chris, thank you so much for taking just a ton of time out of your day to talk with me about this. It really means a lot, and I had a, I had a great time running through that event with you and just all your thoughts on those types and styles of events. It's been really, really cool to listen to. So thank you so much. This has been awesome. It's always fun chatting. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for listening to the All Day Ruckoff podcast. To learn more about GoRuck Selection or Chris Way's experience at the event, and to get links to everything we talked about during the show, visit the show notes at alldayruckoff.com slash podcast slash episode dash zero one three. To learn more about All Day Ruckoff, you can always visit us at alldayruckoff.com. Did you enjoy the show? We would love a review on Apple Podcasts. Think we can do something better? Send an email directly to me at brian at alldayruckoff.com and I'll get back to you. Thank you so much for all of the support. And remember, attitude is everything. Keep yours positive and drink hard, rock harder. <laughs>